Okay, good morning. This uh, Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Bo, the Arts Girl Stone Chumash, it's on page 340. As is our practice, we'll do a, a brief overview of the whole Parsha, and then uh, we'll delve into the Pesukim that we're going to, uh, to analyze together this morning. So Parshas Bo continues, obviously, with last week's Parsha Veira ended off. Last week we had seven of the ten plagues, and uh, this uh, week, of course, we have the final three of the plagues. By the way, interestingly, if you haven't noticed, there are many, many patterns throughout the plagues. Um, when you come to the Seder table, and we have some of the acronyms that capture the plagues, you can see some of the patterns. But one of the patterns that you may notice is um, the common triplets, the, the, in fact, that's Rabbi Yehuda, how he captures it in terms of the acronym. The first of each, the first of, each of the triplets, if you, if you link them in threes with Makas Bechoros, the tenth plague standing alone, the first of each of the three uh, take place next to the river. The second of each of the three happens with a warning to Paro in his palace. And the third of each of the three takes place suddenly. Without warning, it's just brought upon the Egyptians out of the blue, out of the dark, so to say, which is what we're going to talk about, uh, talk about this morning. What is it? Right. Right. Oh, why doesn't he this time? I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. But we'll see the different kind of cover in just a moment. So we have the eighth plague, which is the plague of locusts, which is how the parasha begins. They spread all over Egypt and so on. And then they, how, how long will this go? Moshe summon, Paro summons Moshe and Aaron, please. You have to get rid of them. And they have a conversation. It's the conversation that we're going to see. He says, where are you going? Why do you want to go? And Moshe says, we're going to worship our God. So Paro says, okay, great, then who's going? Miva mia ochim. Who's heading out? And that's the conversation that we're going to see together in depth uh, this morning. And uh, Paro is prepared to let them go. He uh, calls Moshe and Aaron. And, uh, I'm sorry, then we have the locusts swarm all over Egypt. And they cover the entire land. The land is darkened and they're eating all the trees and the grass and so on. Paro calls Moshe and Aaron. He says, I made a terrible mistake. Please forgive me. You can go. And he turns Moshe Davins to Hashem on Paro's behalf. And the plague is let up. Then the ninth plague comes somewhat out of the blue. And that's the plague of Choshech, of darkness. We'll see different interpretations of darkness. Because at first blush, what's darkness? is such a horrible plague. Okay, the lights were out. We had a blackout. We, uh, we were out of power. It's a hurricane. Okay, so darkness. You know, Makas Bechoros, I mean, contrast the ninth and the tenth plagues. Tenth plague, there is not a house in Egypt that doesn't suffer a deceased, a dead. Firstborn is wiped out. There's, there's vast death. Contrast that with the ninth plague. Okay, dark. Okay, the lights were out. It was a little electrical failure. What's so terrible about darkness? That's what we'll talk about. How long the plague lasted. Paro offerings. And uh, the final uh, hardening of Paro's heart where he says, no, you cannot go. And then the warning of the last and final maka, that of the smiting, the plague of the firstborn. And then we have Moshe in, in Parakid Aleph, Pasuk Dalet. Moshe quotes God, around midnight, approximately midnight, I will go out. Why does it say approximately midnight? Why didn't God say at midnight? There's a lot to discuss on this. There will be an outcry in the land. Then God gives us the first mitzvah in the Torah, the most important, not the most important, a very, very important mitzvah, the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. Why is Rosh Chodesh this first mitzvah that the Jewish people are given to the nation as a whole? We discussed this a few years ago. What's the significance of Rosh Chodesh? Rosh Chodesh of all mitzvahs give Shabbos, Yom Kippur, Kashrus, laws of family purity, honest weights and measures, honesty, integrity. Rosh Chodesh? Today is Rosh Chodesh. Happy, good, a good, a good Nechodesh. So, is it such a grace uh, yantif today? Rosh Chodesh, that's, the, that's the, uh, the first mitzvah, the great gift? And the answer is yes. Svarno has a beautiful comment Rabbi Salavechik elaborated on. The idea is the first differentiation between being a slave and a free person is time. The gift of Rosh Chodesh is the opportunity to control time. And the difference between being a slave whose time, when your time is all your masters, you don't control time, you don't control your destiny, you don't control your schedule. In fact, one of the most abusive things that people can do is to manipulate other people's schedule. Tell someone meet me here and then keep them waiting and change this. Make it's very it's very controlling of somebody else. It's very manipulative. It's very controlling. It's very enslaving. A free person, freedom is when you control your own time, when you are an arbiter of your own destiny. 
So the Sforno, and as I said, Rabbi Soloveitchik elaborates, the first mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh is a great gift because it's what differentiates the free person from the slave. The ability to set time, the ability for Rosh Chodesh. And then Hashem describes what Pesach is going to be like. Of course, this is before it even occurs. It's also fascinating. There's so much to talk about. But Hashem describes what, what Pesach is going to be like, the Pesach offering. This is before they even leave. He's describing what the Pesach offering is going to be like. And then... Hashem carries out the final plague. The holiday of Pesach is described that we're going to have to celebrate it. Here's the interesting part. Give you some food for thought for your Seder table already. But the parsha says, Shivas Yamim Matzos Tochelu, top of page 354. For seven days you're going to eat matzah. Seven days you're going to eat matzah? The tenth plague hasn't even been performed yet. They haven't been rushed out of Egypt. They haven't even left in such haste that the bread couldn't rise. If you ask any kindergarten kid in the middle of the night, why do we eat matzah on Pesach? They'll all tell you. Because we left so quickly with such alacrity and zeal, there wasn't time for the bread to rise. That's why we have matzah on Pesach. Who doesn't know that? Here's the only problem. Even before we didn't have time for the bread to rise, Hashem says, you're going to have this holiday. This whole thing is going to culminate with something called Pesach. And here's how you're going to celebrate it every year. With a sacrifice, the Paschal Lamb. Seven days, you're going to eat matzah, you're going to avoid chametz, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't understand the events that that's supposed to commemorate didn't even yet happen so clearly there's something much more intrinsic a much greater connection between Matzah and Pesach than the fact that we didn't have time for it to rise but we're not talking about any of this today just want to plant some seeds for you Another time, we're getting ready for Pesach. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, Paro finally surrenders, the Jewish people leave, the duration of the exile, and uh, more of the halachas of the Karban Pesach, remembering the mitzvah to remember the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. We have to, it's such a part of our, basic part of our memory. Think about how many mitzvahs we have that include remembering the Exodus that we left Egypt. Every single day, Shema, the third paragraph, reminds us that we left Egypt. Shabbos, Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, commemorating the fact that we left Egypt. Kiddush, Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So many mitzvahs, so many, so much of our ritual, of our lifestyle, contains within it reminders we left Egypt. There's a lot to say on that. I think the idea is to remind us that not only did we leave Egypt, but Egypt is supposed to leave us. And that's what we struggle with. One of my Rebbeim, Refreshal Shechter, is going to be here in a few weeks. He's going to give a shir on Sunday morning. In a couple of weeks, he's speaking about Skula's superstition and Ayin Hara. And I've heard him say a number of times, we left Egypt, but tragically, Egypt hasn't left all of us. The Egyptian culture of superstition and evil eye and attributing powers to things other than the Almighty is a foreign influence. That's Egyptian paganism. So we left Egypt. Has Egypt fully left us? That's what we remind ourselves by constantly reflecting on Yitzhak Mitzrayim as well, remembering that Hashem is the one who did it. And then we have the last uh, Pasuk of the Parsha. Here's another mitzvah which is commemorative of leaving Egypt. Tefillin. Tefillin, the obligation of Tefillin. Okay, so that's the Parsha. That's an overview. As I hinted to, there are many, 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 many things to talk about. But we have limited time. So let's go through some of the Pesukim. I think where we left off last year, Pasuk Vav, Perak Yud, Pasuk Vav. We're kind of in the middle here, but that's okay. Chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. This is the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, of Arba. And here, Moshe and Aaron came to Paro, and they said, if you're going to refuse to let us out, you're going to bring locusts all over you, it's going to cover the face of the earth, you're not going to be able to see, you're going to fill your houses, and so forth. That's where we are. Pasuk Vav. Moshe and Aaron are warning Paro. If you don't listen, these locusts are going to come swarm your house, all of your palaces. They're going to be so great, there's going to be so many, that it will be more than your fathers and grandfathers have ever seen from the day they came onto the earth until today. And then what happens? Moshe turns and he leaves Paro's presence. He turns, and he turns, and he leaves. Now, there are ten plagues. This is the eighth. We've not been told Moshe turns and leaves. Isn't that obvious? You're done with the conversation, what do you do? You don't say, uh, listen, Paro, while I'm here, can I just take a nap on the couch over there? It looks pretty comfortable. Can I stay and get some work done? I have some phone calls to return. Of course, you're done with the conversation. You're done warning Paro. Time to leave. What do you mean? Vayif and he turned. Vayetse me in Paro and he left. 
What does that mean? What does that mean? So look at the Ibn Ezra. Fram, you asked about Kavod. Says the Ibn Ezra, Vayifan, he turned to Amar of Yeshua, Ki Vayifan, Ushav el Moshe, Shahayacholai Kavod Lamalchos, Shapona el Amelach Betsesa, Vahulolech Achoranis. The Ibn Ezra takes it literally. When you leave the presence of a great person, of an awesome power, you don't turn your back, but you turn and you walk away backwards. Lahavdil, the way we walk away from the Kotel. The way we are instructed to walk away from shul. I once gave a drasha, I quoted Rav Shlomo Kabach. He has a beautiful, uh, beautiful thought. You know, on Shmini Atzeres, is the eighth day. So Shmini Atzeres is like the, Rav Shlomo doesn't say this, but Shmini Atzeres, Hashem says, you know, Kasha, I lie, it's so hard for me that you're leaving. Please stay one more day. So Shmini Atzeres, I tried to paint the image, is our walking away backwards from Hashem. We don't abruptly get up and leave. After Elul and Rosh Hashanah, Saras Mechuva, Yom Kippur, first days of Sukkot, last days of Sukkot, but we walk away backwards. Shlomo Kabach, on one of his tapes, says I, he's describing the Kotal and you walk away backwards and he says, I give you a bracha, that your children should always walk away backwards from you. That, you know, describing that we as the children of Hashem, we don't turn our back and walk abruptly away from Hashem. But then when we spend time together, that your children always turn and walk away. So that's what Ibn Ezra is describing. Moshe is taking leave of Paro. Again, Paro is the Hitler. Ahmed Understand who Paro is. He's responsible for the attempted genocide, the murder of, of countless Jews. Systematic attempt to annihilate us. But, but Moshe feels Paro. It doesn't matter the man. It's the position he holds, the authority that he represents is worthy of honor. And so he walks away backwards. He turned and walked away backwards. There was a, a little controversy this week because the Boston Bruins, who won the Stanley Cup, were invited to visit the White House. Many championship teams in different sports are invited to the White House to meet the president. So the goalie of the Boston Bruins, who happened to have been the MVP, the most valuable player, refused to go. He said, I think government's pathetic. President's <laughs> pathetic. I'm not interested. Now, he didn't, he didn't make a statement. It wasn't as obnoxious as I just made it. He just declined. The rest of the team went, and he declined to go because he says government's broken, it needs to be fixed, and I'm not interested in showing honor to the government. So my humble opinion, he made a mistake. My humble opinion is he made a mistake. Because it doesn't matter you want to make a statement. Okay, you know, separately write an op-ed piece. When you meet the president for your picture, pull him aside, give your 15-second version of what you think he's doing wrong. But the president of the United States of America, the position invites, and it's an it's a invitation of respect. I think the proper, personally, my humble opinion, it's not a halachic opinion, is that it's the, the proper thing to do. And you say, we saw it Rashi last week's Parsha, we see it to Ibn Ezra in this week's Parsha. There is a concept that even when an individual is not deserving of respect, their position is deserving of respect. Not for them, but ultimately because of what it says about us. We want to cultivate and refine and harness within ourselves a sense of respect, awe, and reverence for positions of authority. And when we dilute it and when we distort it, ultimately we have no respect for any authority, ultimately including that of Hashem. So Ibn Ezra says, Vayifan means Moshe turned and walked out backwards to show respect to Paro. The Ramban also notices this Pasuk. Vayifan Vayetzeh, Bavusha pachto ma'od bebarad, chishav Moshe sheyifchidu gamata sheyamuzim baravim yavdu yasra pleita nesheres lahem. Vayetzeh below reshuso term sheyanu hain olav, kideh sheyitzatsu badavar, chishav machshavos emes, kikeinasu v'amr lepara, term tedaki yavdu mitzrayim. So he actually, the Ramban says almost the exact opposite of Yimun Ezra. Not only did he not turn and walk away backwards, Vayifan, Vayetzeh is the image as if, see, for, for, for Ibn Ezra, Vayifan means he was walking towards the door, and then he turned at the last moment and walked out backwards. Vayifan, he turned at the last moment, Vayetze, and he walked out backwards. That's how the Ibn Ezra understands it. The Ramban says no. Vayifan means he's in the middle of the conversation with Paro. They're in the middle of talking. Vayifan. Moshe turns, Vayetze, and he walks out. Abruptly. He walked out on Paro. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to induce the fear in Paro's mind. He didn't wait for Paro's answer. Sometimes to make a threat, you're not interested in the answer. You're interested in planting the seed of how severe and significant this is. So Moshe tells Paro, if you don't let my people go, you can have locusts swarming the entire land. And he doesn't wait for Paro to say, mm, okay, they can go. Or no, they, can, they must stay. He paints the portrait, he paints a picture 
of what it will look like with locusts swarming the entire land, and with that vivid in Paro's mind, and with Paro still absorbing it with fear, he turns and he walks out, hoping that Paro's advisors are going to turn to him, something they would not do in Moshe's presence, and say, what are you, crazy? Now, did that work out? Pasuk Zayin. It worked. It worked. Paro's, uh, Moshe's negotiation strategy worked. Because he plants the seed, paints the portrait, walks out abruptly, and Paro's aides turn to him, his cabinet turns to him and says, what is the matter with you? How long are you going to keep this up? Send these people. Let them worship their God. Before you destroy the whole land of Egypt. What are you, crazy? You can imagine a conversation like this happening in Iran. As sanctions tighten, unfortunately still not tight enough, but the people are going to be strangled. The central bank will be strangled. The import of oil will be strangled. Eventually they're going to turn and they're going to say, Ahmadinejad or crazy religious leaders, do you hate the Jews more? Or love your own people more. You're going to have to make a decision. Which is greater? Your hatred of the Jews or your love of yourselves? Oh, yeah. Because at some point it's going to come to a head. And that's what the, they turn to Paro and they say, Paro, this is the eighth set of sanctions God has levied against you. You're strangling the people. Do you hate the Jews so much that you're willing to destroy all of Egypt? You're willing to create a mass suicide? Let them go. Let him go. So that's the Ramban's interpretation. Vayif and Vayetze means not the Ibn Ezra. He walked to the door, turned around, and walked out backwards. The opposite. He's in the middle of talking to Paro. He paints a picture. He levies threats. Vayif and Vayetze. Abruptly, he turns and he walks out so that Paro will have to mull over what's about to befall him. So much so that in fact the strategy works. The cabinet turned to him and encouraged him, please. The Orachayim HaKadosh also comments on this. Zilzalu be'enav she'achar she'ezvad va'amar Hashem hitzdik v'chazal ha'sechuna l'zeh panav ha'yetze k'derech ha'nogim sh'ar b'nei adam. Moshe is denigrating Paro. V'timtzam k'gam Paro ha'rosh ha'shilam lochein t'chsev ha'yishav v'yigaresh ha'sam b'ez p'nei Paro. U'lezeh timtza sh'achar k'chishol ha'lezbalo ha'sar ha'zamak ha'zar b'amar alem chatasi l'ashem See, Moshe shows no deference or respect. Again, unlike the Ibn Ezra. So Paro reciprocates. And Paro throws Moshe out. If you skip ahead, Pasuk Yud Aleph, when they finish this conversation, which we're going to go in depth more in one moment, in the end of Pasuk Yud Aleph, when they finish the conversation, Vayigarish Osam Me'is Pnei Paro. Paro throws him out. When Paro says, Miva miochim, who's going to worship? And Moshe says, We're all going, men, women, children, everybody's going. And Paro throws him out. We don't find that anywhere else. That at the end of a conversation, Paro throws him out. Why did Paro throw him out? Because Moshe also, Moshe walked out on Paro. He was casual, he was pedestrian, he treated him like he was a nothing. So Paro got frustrated and he threw him out. And that's why when Paro calls Moshe and begs him, please, you must pray on our behalf. Get rid of these locusts. It says, um, Yeah, Pasuk Tazayan. Vayimahe Paro lekrol Moshe liyaron. Vayimah chatasi l'ashem elokechem v'lachem. Paro says, please, get rid of them. I have sinned to God and v'lachem to you. Where did he sin to Moshe? When Vayigarish Hashem, when he threw him out. That's how the Orachayim understands what's going on here. Um, the Kliyakar, there's a fourth commentary on these same words, understands a fourth way. So the Kliyakar understands means he turned to leave, but he hadn't yet left. So Moshe is kind of standing on the side of the room now when the advisors turn to Paro, pointing to Moshe, say, how long will you let this guy be a thorn in our sides? What are you, crazy? 
He turned and he left, and we have four different ways of understanding. The Ibn Ezra says Vayifan means with deference and awe. He turned and walked out backwards. The Ramban says, no. Vayifan Vayitzay means he's in the middle of a conversation, and he walked right out on him because he wanted to startle Paro. Nothing else had been working, he wanted to startle Paro. Number three, the Orachayim HaKadosh says, Moshe was treating him so casually, like he's a nothing. And that really raised the ire of Paro, so Vayigarsh Paro himself threw him out. And the Kliyakar says, no, means he never left. He turned to leave, but he remained, and that's why when Paro wants to continue the conversation, he just says, come closer. He doesn't have to say, someone go get him. He kind of summons him back, because Vayifan means he just turned to leave, but he never actually left. So you see how you can have a Pasuk, Right here on the page, four different interpretations of what it means. Let's keep going. So Pesachas, Vayushav es Moshe v'Ezaron aparo, right, that's Vayushav. They, they came back. Means they had never really left. They were pushed back, they came back. Vayomer aleim l'chu yivdu es Hashem alokeichem, mi vami haochim. So Paro listens to his cabinet. The cabinet say, you're strangling Egypt. You're destroying us. What's the matter with you? Let him go. Okay, so Paro calls Moshe and Aaron, he says, Go, go serve your God. Who's going? Who's going? What do you mean, who's going? Moshe, our youth and our elderly, our sons and daughters, our animals, our herds, it's a joyous day. So Para says, Verse number 10. Para turns to Moshe and he says, So be it. Go, be with Hashem. I'm sending you and your children. Look at the evil intent that you have planned. Look, there is Ra, there's evil opposite your face. Lochain. Paro refuses Moshe's request. Not the women, not the children, not the elderly, not the cattle. Only the men. Only the men. What kind of a funny conversation is this? All the Jewish people are, are, are subservient, are servants in Mitzrayim. We're all suffering terribly. And here we have, finally, an agreement for the liberation of the Jewish people. Paras and Miva Miochim, who's going? What do you mean who's going? Of course we all want to go. Who wouldn't want to leave this oppression, this persecution? What do you mean who's going? And Moshe spells it all out, this one and that one, this one and the other one. And Paras says, mm, no, just the men. Why? What's going on here? What's really underlying this conversation? So if you look at the Balaturim, Miva Mihochim, Paro said to Moshe, What are you so eager to have everybody go? You think that they're all getting into the land of Israel? Only two people from here are going into Israel, namely Yehoshua and Kalev. This whole generation is destined to die in the desert. For the rebellious nature. So what are you so eager? You think it's better on the other side? You're going to get out of here, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to struggle, and you're not even going to get into Israel with them. Miva mi only two are going. Kalev and Yoshua. Because Miva mi alchim in Gamatri is Kalev and Bin Nun. That's Yoshua and Kalev. So Moshe answers, no. Bin Arenev is are young and are old. Kilo nigzer gzera lo apachas mi ben chaf, lo ayesem mi ben samach. Yeah, the, the God's decree that they would die in the desert, says the Balaturim, didn't apply to those younger than 20 or those older than 60. So you know who's going? Bivanenu, Binarenu, Uvizkanenu. The young ones under the 20, and Vizkanenu, those who are older 60. So we're all going to Israel. Now the Balaturim, I don't think, means literally that Paro anticipated what was going to happen in God's enactment. So Balaturim is his usual... Uh, cute way of fitting in other parts of the Chumash as being predicted uh, through Gematria here. But it's cute. Fine. Look at the Ramban. How does he understand what's going on here? 
Paro thought only the distinguished leaders would leave. There'd be a delegation of the leadership. Those who had a name. Those who had prominence. And Moshe said, no, everybody's going. Because this is a Chag Hashem Lanu. And we all have a mitzvah, Lachog, to celebrate with God. So Paro finally agreed. He said, fine, all the men can go, but the women and the children cannot go. Cannot go. Well, what's the conversation? What's going on here? So if you, if you look, it's very simple. Rabbi Salavitchik explained. Paro was under the impression, why did they want to go? This is a fundamental difference between... Paro's understanding and world outlook and that of the Jewish people. Why did Paro anticipate the Jewish people wanted to leave? Moshe kept saying, let my people go to serve God. Well, religion is in whose hands according to Paro? Exclusively. It's in the hands of the priests. Religion belongs in the temple. Religion belongs in the synagogue. Religion belongs in the house of worship. And religion is performed by the priest by the individuals assigned to represent the people. So Paro says, Mi who's going? Because if your whole reason for wanting to be freed is to worship God, you want to go out to the desert to set up a temple and offer sacrifices, okay, submit the names of your priests. Give me their social security numbers, give me their passports, and we'll get clearance for your priests to be able to go on this mission because you claim to only want to go to be able to serve God. And from Paro's perspective, from the Egyptian outlook on religion, namely, that it's the individual does not have a role in religion, but the individual, so to say, assigns their role to the priest who carries out ritual on their behalf. From that perspective and approach, Paro's argument made sense. Women, who else needs to go? Just let the priests go and they will perform the service. But Moshe answers, no, you don't understand our religion. The way our religion works is young and old, men and women, children, cattle, family unit, everybody. And why? What was Moshe's argument? Ki chag Hashem lanu. Because for us, religion is not about ritual and ceremony, offerings and sacrifices. Relig- ritual, religion is not delegated to the hands of the priest to function on our behalf, but rather Chag Hashem Lanu. It is a Chag for us. It's a, it's, a, it's a celebration. What's a Chag? A Chag is a holiday. It's a celebration. It's joy for all of us. Men, women, children, young and old, everybody. It's a Chag. So you understand that there's a fundamental machlokas or argument taking place between Moshe and Paro. What is the role of religion? Does the individual practice religion? Or is religion relegated, delegated to the priest to carry it out on their behalf? And Moshe responds, you don't understand. For us, a relationship with God is not about rituals, sacrifices, offerings, ceremonies. For us, it's a lifestyle. It's a chag. It's a lifestyle of joy, of elevation, of enrichment, of happiness, of meaning, of purpose. We're all involved. Everyone has equal access. The rabbi is no greater than any member of the congregation. There's no sacrifice the rabbi offers. There's no, the priest doesn't have a greater role. Every single Jew has a role in their own religious relationship with the Almighty. And that's what Moshe's response is to Paro. We're all going. We're all going. What did it mean when Paro said, Ru'uki ra'a neged p'neichem. I see, I anticipate, you've got evil. You've got something planned. So look at Rashi. Paro is an astronomer. He says, I, there's a star. And the star's name is Ra'a, is evil. There is a star called wickedness. And it is waiting to greet you in the desert. It is a sign of blood and death. When the Jewish people 
were unloyal to God and worshipped the golden calf. And God wanted to destroy us. You may remember this. This is the laning of the fast day. Right? Moshe, when he davens to Hashem for forgiveness after they fail God with the sin of the golden calf, Moshe says, God, don't cause the Mitzrim to say, you see, you took them out, Bira'ah. So God accepted that argument from Moshe and said, you're right. I don't want to give the Mitzrim any reason to feel triumphant, to feel joyous, to feel validated. So he switched the blood that should have been for their death to the blood of bris milah. So that's Paro says, where are you going? Taking children, this, that you want to bring them to the desert? Are you sure? Because I see through my... What do you look at to see the stars? Not microscope. Telescope. I see through my telescope this star and it's got your name on it. And it's a symbol of blood and death. And it's going to be your end. So when God really wants to destroy them in the desert, Moshe says, God, you can't do it. You're going to prove Paro right. You're going to prove his prediction right. Don't give them the satisfaction. And God is moved by that argument and switches the blood of the death to the blood of Brismila. Let's keep going. Pasuk Yid Beis. What is the equivalent of Shani? They spread the locust all over Egypt and it eats all of the grass, whatever was left after hail. Moshe extends his hand on the land. All the day and all the night. The morning came and the wind brought these locusts. The locusts settled on the land. Kaved mode, it was very thick, very heavy. Second time we're being told, there never was like it before, nor would there ever be like it again. Covered the entire land until it was dark, and ate all of the grass. There's copriates, and also it was a plague that killed all of the fruit. Whatever had been left. In the entire land of Egypt, there was not a blade of grass. There was not one fruit hanging from the tree. says, I have sinned to God and to you. We saw why to you. Why to you? Because he had expelled them. He had thrown them out earlier. What do you mean by hair? What's the rush now? The Svarno explains. Paro's rush is... The locusts have already consumed all of the grass. All of the growth of the fields, all the wheat, all of the fruit. But before they now go even deeper and they eat the roots, destroying any ability to regrow what was lost, Paro hastened to summon Moshe. What caused him to hasten was his stubbornness had led them to lose all of the harvest. But at least if he could save the roots, then they could grow again. So Moshe, so Paro rushes. And what does he say? Please forgive my forgive my mistake this time. And daven to God, your God, that He removed from me only this death. Paro's desperate. Forgive me. Vatiru Lashem Elokechem daven to your God and spare me from this death. Look at the Kliyakar. In the previous verse he said, I have sinned against God and you. But now he says, please you forgive me and pray to God for me. So he switches the order. Right? First he says, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Please you forgive me and daven to God for me. So it's an inconsistent order. Says the Kliyakar, Hiktim achet l'ashem l'fishu gadol Minnesota, Yosem and Achet Shechatul Moshe Viaron. 
first he acknowledges, admits, confesses the sin to God, because that's greater. To fail God is greater than to fail man. But achieving forgiveness from God is easier than from man, says the Kliyakar. So first he needs to get Moshe to forgive him, and only then will Moshe be his advocate to ask God for forgiveness on his behalf also. So he needs Moshe to act as his intermediary to get God to forgive him. So he has to first ask forgiveness from Moshe and only then can he ask it from God. Okay, let's keep going because I want to get to the ninth Makkah. Moshe takes leave of Paro and he davens to God. Hashem switches the wind, it drives out the locusts till none of them are left. Despite this, despite this devastating plague, despite the devastating plague, nevertheless, Paro's heart becomes hardened once again and he does not let the Jewish people go. How recognizes Hashem's power, and that's the purpose of the Bible. How recognizes what? How recognizes Hashem's power right. over His and His uh, Right. So, in other words, the fact that the fact that Paro asks Moshe to daven to God to stop it seems to be Paro waving the white flag. I give up. You're the God, not my gods. Pa- Hashem is not done. You could have asked that earlier. Because each of these plagues seems to have their impact, and Paro seems ready, and then... Well, not yet. I'll tell you why it's not. Because it says, Go pray to your God. Paro's not yet ready to acknowledge or exceed that this is the God, my God, our God. Go pray to your God. I don't know how you did this. Get rid of it. Fix it. Be done with it. But aside from that, God clearly had ten plagues He wanted to perform. God could have performed one plague. Regardless. Right, regardless. God could have performed one plague in such a devastating way that Paro would have waved the white flag, I give up, you're victorious, you're God, you're the one, not my gods. But He didn't. God had this plan, and again, we don't have time, but we could develop the, the development and evolution of these ten plagues and what they each prove. In fact, we'll, we'll speak about it right now in a moment with darkness because there are some who suggest that each of the plagues correspond with a different Egyptian deity and by God bringing the plague it was proving that that deity is not at all a, a power or a god whatsoever. So you see this very, very poignantly here with the ninth plague. Perak Yud Pasal Chavala, verse 21. Brings us to the ninth plague. And again, as we've said with the, pow- with the pattern... If you break the plagues into three sets of three, and then you have the tenth standing on its own, the first of each of the three sets by the river. Second of each of the three sets in the palace. And the third of each of the three sets happens where? Out of nowhere. And look what happens. Pasuk Chavalv. Hashem El Moshe. God tells Moshe, Turn your hand towards the heavens. Let them be darkness across the whole land. Stick your hand to the heavens, let there be darkness, and the darkness will be tangible. Like mamash, mamashus, v'yamesh. It's tangible. You can almost feel it. You could cut it with a knife. The fog was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Moshe sticks his hand towards heaven. <coughs> Darkest descends on Egypt for three days. A person couldn't see his brother, couldn't stand up for three days, but the Jews all had light wherever they were. Here we have the ninth plague comes suddenly of darkness. Look at Rashi. This darkness was even darker than night. What do you mean by that? See, normally, what's night? 
Darkness is normally just the absence of light. Darkness is normally just the absence of light. What's the nighttime? Why is it dark at night? Because the sun has set. So there's nothing called darkness that descends. It's poetic to say darkness descended. Is that the sun descends, the sun disappears, and with it the light, leaving in its wake darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. This darkness was not just the absence of light. This was an increased darkness. Look at the Sfarno. <coughs> Normally the darkness of night, the air is ready to accept light. All it's missing is light. This was much more than just the absence of light. This was a fog that was so thick. This fog was so thick that if you'd shine a spotlight on it, no light would penetrate through. That's why no one could see one another. Why not just light a candle? Light a torch? Light the flashlight? What's, I don't understand. This plague is so horrible? Big deal. Light a candle. So the Sforno is explaining, this is explaining, this is more than just a power failure. This is more than just a blackout. It's more than just the absence of light. This is a fog so thick that you couldn't see through it whatsoever. This, the Kliyakar also elaborates here. The Kliyakar explains that uh, this was like a double night. This was an unusual darkness. You see, the commentators are all describing. It's not just that God did not have the sun rise. It's not just that there was a power failure. But this was a... a not just darkness as the absence of light, but darkness introduced as a creation on its own. Darkness represented as a fog that was so thick, you could not see in front of you. If you were standing, you couldn't sit. Look at Rashi. Pasuch of Bez. Rashi says, <coughs> The truth is, Rashi points out that the Pasuch says three days twice to tell us what? How long was the plague of darkness and truth? Six days. Six days. And it was so thick you couldn't see. If you were standing, you were afraid to sit. If you were sitting, you were afraid to stand. Now why did God bring this darkness? Rashi continues by quoting the Medrash. Why did God bring this darkness? It's kind of a funny plague. It's a kind of a benign plague. So you sit still, don't move. Three days, six days, okay. Nothing's eating your field, nothing's killing your animals, nothing's killing your firstborn, nothing's killing your... It's kind of a benign plague. And here we seem to be progressing with the plagues. And this is the ninth plague, Choshech. So what's so terrible? Why did God bring this plague? So Rashi explains, quotes one Medrash, there's two Midrashim. The Medrash Rashi quotes is that there were wicked Jewish people and God wanted them to die in Egypt. But he didn't want the Mitzrim to be so uh, joyous or happy to see them die. So in order to prevent them from being able to see the wicked Jews die, God brought darkness so the Mitzrim couldn't get the satisfaction of seeing their Jewish counterparts die. That's one. There's a second Medrash which says God brought the darkness because there was something that had to happen under the cloak of darkness. There was the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Avram Avinu. God told Avram, when your children and grandchildren are going to descend into Egypt, and ultimately I will take them out and form from them a great nation. They are going to leave, said God to Moshe, to, to Avram. Birchush Gadol. They're going to be very wealthy. Very wealthy? Where are they making this money in Egypt? They're slaves. You know where they're making the money? God told them, under the cloak of darkness, you have light. You're going to go into your Egyptian counterparts' homes, and you're going to take... And you're going to take it with you. And that's they indeed left with great wealth. So I'll tell you, a few years ago, Dr. Nabil Hilmi, the dean of the faculty of law at the University of Al-Zakazik in Egypt, joined a number of his Egyptian ex- expatriates in Switzerland 
to file a lawsuit against the Jews of the world. You remember this? It was in the news. Dr. Hilmi argued for the recovery of property stolen during the Exodus from Egypt 3,300 years ago. So there was an interview. He's the dean of the law school. This guy's not just uh, looking for his 15 minutes of fame. The dean of the law school. So there's an Egyptian newspaper called the Al-Aram Al-Arabi and there was an interview with him. And he said the following. He says, we've set up a legal team to prepare the necessary legal confrontation aimed at restoring what the Jews stole a long time ago to which the statute of limitations cannot possibly apply. (laughs) Furthermore, the theft is based on their holy book, the same source on which they rely when they invaded other peoples. So the person asked, it's clear why they stole the gold. Why did they take the cooking utensils? (laughs) So Hilmi answered, a police investigation revealed that Moses and Aaron, peace upon them, understood it was impossible to live in Egypt despite its pleasures, and even though the Egyptians included them in every activity, due to the Jews' perverse nature to which the Egyptians had reconciled themselves, though with an obvious unwillingness. Therefore, an order was issued by the Jewish rabbis to flee the country, and the exodus should be secret and under the cover of darkness, and with the largest possible amount of loot. The code word was at midnight. In addition, the Jewish women were told to steal the golden cooking utensils, and that's what happened. So the person asked, the interviewer, but the Jews cast doubt on the story with their usual methods. What is the religious ev- evidence? So Hilmi answered, naturally the Jews cast doubt on the story because that's their interest. But the answer would be that the story is based on what is written in the Torah. It can be found in Exodus chapter 35, verses 12 and 36. So, and then on and on, there's a whole argument. Hilmi says, if we assume that the weight of what was stolen was one ton, doubled every 20 years, even if the annual interest is only 5%, and one ton of gold is 700 kilograms of pure gold, we must remember what was stolen was jewelry that is alloyed with copper. Hence, after a thousand years, it would be worth 1,125,898,240 tons, which equals whatever billion tons. In other words, 1.125 trillion tons of gold. He goes on and on and on with his calculations. So what's the answer to his lawsuit? Which, by the way, never obviously <laughs> turns into anything. Slave labor, time and a half. So I'll tell you the good news. This, this, uh, law, this dean of the law school in Egypt was not the first to raise this lawsuit. Over 2,000 years ago, a similar charge was levied against the Jewish people in the court of none other than Alexander the Great. <coughs> the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Daftad the Aleph recounts the entire story there, including the defense. And the defense was brilliant then, and it's the same defense that applies now. And the defense is, Dr. Hilmi, what is your source? What is your evidence that we stole these goods? The Torah says so. The same Torah that says that God told us to take it? The same Torah that tells us that God gave us the land of Israel? And that it's ours? In other words, the same document that he's claiming is evidence for our stolen it, is the same document that gives us a right to own it, that makes it ours. In fact, the Gemara there also quotes another historic lawsuit, that the children of Yishmael and Hagar sue the Jewish people, claiming that Canaan, modern-day Israel, is really theirs. So the Torah identifies their antecedents, no less than Yitzchak, to be the progeny of Avraham. Right? Our great-grandfather Yishmael Torah is not yours. So once again, the Gemara responds on behalf says your source that the land belongs to your grandfather is the same source that the land belongs to us. So you'd say in, in learning, Memanavshach. <laughs> if, if that's your evidence, then, then it's stronger evidence for us. And if you don't have that evidence, then you have no evidence. So it's the same answer to this lawsuit. But what was really this plague of darkness? What was really going on? As we said, it seems to be a somewhat benign plague. What was really so terrible? So... We saw one opinion is it was a fog that was so thick it wasn't just a darkness that was an absence of life, of light. There are bad claims that the Egyptians were literally and physically scared to death because of this plague. They thought it, the darkness was so thick it was going to enter their body and it was going to kill them. They were paralyzed with fear from the darkness, says the Rabag. The Torah Tamima has a different approach. Epstein. He says the darkness was not anything physical at all. But this was a plague that struck the eyes of the Egyptians. They all got cataracts. They all got uh, macular degeneration. They all got a terrible ophthalmological, ophthalmological, whatever the word is, disease. And they couldn't see anything. All of Egypt went blind simultaneously. But nothing in the, in the rest of the world changed. Nothing else changed. Other opinions say 
you know, the Gemara lists those who are as if they're dead even when they're alive. And one of those examples is somebody who's blind. A blind person is dead even when they're alive because they have no access to their world. Of course, this was written before today when we have advanced so far in terms of what opportunities even someone who's blind has. But maybe the reason this plague was so devastating is because a person feels so isolated, a person feels so alone, a person feels so helpless when everything is, is pitch black. If you've never been to the Blind Museum in Israel, it's a very, very powerful experience to walk around the Blind Museum and understand how helpless and hopeless, how, how alone you feel, how fearful you are at that, uh, at that moment. The, um, the other suggestion is that the Egyptians worshipped many deities, but their supreme deity was the sun god, known as Ra, R-A. Interestingly, the Ra Neged Enechem. The famous was named for the same famous city of Ramses, of Ramses, that the Jews were forced to forced to build. In short, the Ramses was Ra. This was the supreme Egyptian deity, was the god of the sun. So you could imagine why this was a devastating plague, this ninth plague. Because God essentially said, you're worshipping the sun? You think the sun, which of course, in truth, is the source of energy, warmth, light, generating power. The sun is a very, very strong force. Shabbos HaGadol, we spoke before Birchas HaChama, all about the role of the sun in our lives. The sun is a very powerful force. But you worship the sun, says God? Pfft, I'll cover up the sun, no problem, I'll throw a blanket on it. Six days, complete darkness. Your sun, it's gone. You can imagine. You can imagine how devastating it is for the Egyptians who are led to believe that the sun is a deity, is a god, and the sun then seems so helpless, the sun is gone. The sun disappears. The sun is absolutely covered up. That's something which is devastating. And that's consistent if you understand the role of the plagues is to overwhelm or to dispel the notion that the Egyptian gods are gods whatsoever. Just the last uh, thought I'll share with you on this Choshech, another understanding of the plague, is look at the verse. Verse 23. The dark was so thick a person could not see their brother. The Chidush Arim, of Yitzchak Meir of Ger, the Gera Rebbe from the, 18th, the 19th century, uh, expresses a beautiful thought. He says, you know what the plague of darkness was? Egocentricity. People couldn't even see their brother. They didn't care about one another. Darkness means that their eyes were shut to the world around them. They were so insensitive to the pain of others. They could not feel the pain of someone else. The darkness, the plague of darkness was that everyone was so self-absorbed that they couldn't see those around them. And that was darkness. Darkness wasn't physical, wasn't literal. The darkness was self-induced because the ego caused them to not be able to see anyone else in their life. That, that's what the Apostle One person could not see even another. And that's another interpretation of why this was such a devastating plague. All right, we'll stop here. We're going to pick up next year from Pasuk Chavdalad, where we uh, left off. Yes, Helen. Lunch and learn with Rabbi Yehuda in 10 minutes.